you brought your Bibles, would you open with me to Revelation chapter 6 and 7? I think uh, most of you would agree and would say with me that um, in RUF we make a, a really concerted effort uh, not to condescend to you. Um, we think that the Bible is simple enough to be understood in its basic message. Um, and so we're not afraid to look and say we're, we're going to do some work. And so hopefully tonight I want to do a little work with you. Uh, I recognize it's a challenging study and there's a lot to go through. And if there's, if there's any other night where I need your patience, it's going to be tonight. Uh, to work with me, to pay attention to where the text is going, uh, to see if we can. I think you'll find that there's a great reward uh, at sort of digging through some of this. Uh, but I'm going to read chapters 6 and 7. It takes me about five minutes to get through it. But once again, <laughs> it's worth it, I promise you. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word this evening. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living, third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. 
And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Get then the list of the, of the tribes there. Skip down to verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great number, a great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word for us. Ivan Karamazov, the middle brother in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, carried around a little notebook in which he copied down every single instance of suffering that he had ever heard of. There were terrible things in the notebook. Accident and torture, cruelty and agony malignity, despair. It was all there. He specialized in the suffering of innocent children. Eugene Peterson commented on this little book in a book of his where he said the, the accumulated anecdotes served up an unanswerable indictment against the existence of God. Because this is the way the world is, there cannot be a God. Look, I mentioned this last night, but I want to begin with it again tonight. Because Peterson says in his book that he imagines that that little notebook of Ivan's is probably an international bestseller. For more college students than I can count, the reason, the ostensible reason for wanting to leave the Christian faith behind is the suffering that you see going on around you and an inability to reconcile that with what you've always been taught about God. On the one hand, you hear that he is an all-powerful God able to stop evil. On the other hand, you hear that there is an all-loving, good God who would be willing to stop evil. But because evil exists, and because we are so readily exposed to it, then there cannot be a God, because if He was powerful, then He would stop it, and if He was good, then He would want to. Sound familiar? But what I want you to see is is that the Bible, if there's nothing else that you get out of this, please know that the Bible is just as concerned about that question as you are. 
or about your friend, or as your friend is. As I, I would actually argue that, that throughout all pages of Scripture, humankind is grappling with this question that if there is a God up in heaven, then why do His people suffer? And the Scripture comes alongside us to try to give us answers to that. I believe Revelation 6 and 7 give us one of the more powerful, vivid, symbolic descriptions of the Christian answer to that question that you get throughout the entire Bible. And before we launch into what I think are the two things we get from these chapters, let me give you one small interpretive note that I hope will help you along. I am taking the events of chapters 6 and 7 as if they are events that do not belong to a yet-to-be-experienced future. Does that make sense? Please don't lose me, because this one's a big one. What we're seeing in these chapters, I am submitting to you, do not belong to a distant future, but rather, John is describing a situation that has been and will always be true of the Christian church throughout every epoch of her existence. Does that make sense? In other words, what you're getting here are descriptions of things that we will all go through on a regular basis. Let me see if I can unpack that. Two simple points tonight. I'm not trying to throw you off or anything. I know you're used to three points from sermon preaching people like myself, but only two tonight. Don't feel deprived. I want to look first of all at chapter 6 and its description of Christian suffering. And then I want to look at chapter 7 in its description of Christian sealing, of suffering and sealing tonight. Okay, first of all, chapter 6. I want you to notice, and it would not be readily apparent to you unless you have read ahead in the book of Revelation, as I'm sure most of you have this week, to know that the seals, as these things are broken open, tend to kind of hang together. And by the way, this happens in the other two major sweeps of judgment as they come in Revelation. If you read through the book, you'll find that the bulk of this middle material is occupied by the breaking of the seals, later on by the sounding of the trumpets, and then finally, right before the end, the pouring out or the emptying of seven bowls. But each of those sets of three fall out in the same way. The first four of the seals that are broken tend to hang together. Why? Because they're all introduced by a living creature, one of those four living creatures who say, come. Now, by the way, this is not the first time we have four chariot riders coming out of the throne. In a little book called Zechariah, it's one of those little small ones in the back of the Old Testament, we find there that there's a prophecy given by Zechariah in chapter 6 of exactly the same kind. In that context, back in the Old Testament, those riders come to bring judgment upon the earth. And I see no reason to take that in any different way here in Revelation chapter 6. In other words, these things come to judge the enemies of God. So what do we make of those? Remember, I'm suggesting that we are not waiting for the four horsemen of the apocalypse to arrive, but that the riders are always with us and have always been with us. Let me see if I can demonstrate it. First of all, the white horse comes to bring conquering and conquest. Throughout human history, you have the power shifting back and forth from one regime to another. Christians have always looked at things like the recent Arab Spring as being the white horse riding yet again to upset the balance of power in our world. 
Secondly, the red horse comes to bring calamity and slaughter and bloodshed. Most of you know that the 20th century has by far been the bloodiest that we've had on record up until this time. Thirdly, the black horse comes to bring economic suffering and great disparity between poor and rich. The living creature explains that the prices for food have become exorbitantly high. And yet, however, the rich get to continue living in luxury. That's the reason why the command comes to not damage the oil and the wine. did a little bit of research on this about 10 years ago from Economist magazine. So these are, these are old statistics. It's not gotten better since the year 2000. In 1979, the top CEOs in America made about 39 times more than what their average employees made. In the year 2000, they made a thousand times more than what their employees made. In our world, the top 1% earned 20% of all the income that was made in the U.S. last year. They even own, at the top 1% owns one-third of our country. The disparity between poor and rich is widening, and there is no political statement behind that. It is a fact of economics. Fourthly and finally, the pale horse comes to bring death itself. And since so we spoke so much about that last night, the great cosmic killjoy of death, I'll leave it as it was. As it was. So here's the question then. Is there any comfort in the midst of people who are suffering with that kind of oppression from those writers? I think the key is in the text. Did you notice how it read? Look there at verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. Look down at verse 4. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Who is allowing these things to happen? Who is sending the riders forth? If you look at the context, it seems obvious that the place where the suffering is coming from has its ultimate source it's from the throne of God. Now look, I recognize that for many of you, we've come across an extraordinary sticking point. Trying to understand the relationship between human suffering and God's sovereignty over that that suffering is a question that will only be explained by your campus minister next fall. (laughs) And you can show up at RUF. He's got a whole summer to prepare for it, okay? Okay. And I have no intention of being able either to try to put these two together, of how our minds can understand an absolutely sovereign God who inexplicably allows the suffering that He does. But I will offer you this. I do not think that we can live emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually without it. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. It was uh, about 10, 12 some odd years ago when I got a phone call from my mother, who had only recently gotten off the phone with her sister, my aunt. And they were discussing her child, my cousin, and some of their recent struggles that they had been through. My cousin and his wife had been trying for years to conceive when they finally discovered that they were pregnant with triplets. Yes. (laughs) And they gasped in surprise. We were surprised too and thrilled. The pregnancy actually went extraordinarily well for that kind of circumstance. There in the hospital, though, they began very early, within just a few days, to discover that one of the children was sick and not doing well. Within a couple days, that first child had died. It turns out that it had caught a staph infection there in the hospital. 
Not one week later, the second child, still in the hospital, caught the exact same staph infection and had also died. My aunt was describing to my mother what my cousin had done as he marched into that hospital and scooped up his third child to take her home where she would be safe. And she is to this day. But my mother said that when her sister called her, what came up out of her was this one singular question. She said, I don't think that I can believe in a God who would allow this kind of suffering to befall innocent children, to take my own grandchildren from me in such a senseless, pointless way. My mother responded, I think, in an extraordinarily wise way. Because she, sort of, she, looked at her, she looked at her sister and said, I cannot offer you an adequate explanation for the reason why the pain that is coming in your life is happening. There is no neat answer. Please do not quote Romans 8.28 to your friends when they are in the midst of struggle and suffering. But, to look at her, she, but she looked at her and she said, but understand something. I'm not sure if I want to live in a world where God was not behind these things. In other words, what she said in not so many words was is that she would rather live in a world where God had allowed the suffering that they were going through for reasons that she did not know than live in a world where suffering happened for no reason and was outside of his control and therefore those children had died for nothing. My friends, the great challenge of Christianity is in front of you to say find a middle road between those two extremes. Because either on the one hand, we admit to our creatureliness, to the fact that He is the Creator and I am the creature, and I am unable to sort of scrutinize His judgments in the world. I'm unable to know what all of those things are. That is choice one. Choice two is to give yourself into one of two camps, either to the randomness of the universe where suffering means nothing and is devoid of any kind of meaning, or worse, that we live in a dualistic universe where good and evil are pitted together and who knows who's going to win. My friends, a Christian view of suffering has always looked and said, no, we don't know the answer. But we can look to God's hand to say, that there's a reason behind what he does. We believe that there's a morally sufficient reason for the suffering that he allows that comforts us in the midst of it, even when he doesn't share with us why. I take the greatest encouragement from this to come from the book of Job, strange little Old Testament book in Job that opens up with two chapters that are very interesting. It opens up in a heavenly courtroom where God is holding court and somehow entertains the presence of Satan himself. And as the devil approaches God and looks and mocks his servant Job, God looks and says, I will allow you a certain parameter, but you are not allowed to cross over it. In other words, the deed is at the hands of Satan, but God has placed a fence even around his action so that even the devil is on his chain. And for those of you who are philosophy majors, no, I can't put that together in my mind. But here's the deal. To live in a world that has it comforts God's people. 
Before we move on to the next one, notice that the fifth seal gets opened up to give us a view from heaven. And what we see are all of the martyrs' blood that was spilled, crying out for justice. Most people are put off with this whole idea of those people saying, avenge our blood, that sounds too nasty. But the truth of the matter is, from the West, we are hardly in a place to make that judgment against those people. Because the truth is, we've not lived through the ethnic cleansings of the last 100 years. For the most part, we've not seen our family members carried away as political prisoners. We've not suffered like they have. We might have a different view on retributive justice if we live through that. But then finally, I am taking the sixth seal, please don't lose count, as John's depiction of the end of time. I'm going with certain commentators who will say that the sixth seal are images from the Old Testament of an ultimate cataclysm where no more excuses are made, where no more delusions are entertained. We have the end of space-time history at the sixth seal. And of course, the passage ends with the ominous note, does it not? Who can stand in that day? What a perfect lead-in to chapter 7. We see on the one hand God's suffering in the first point. But secondly, chapter 7 opens us with answering that question. Who can stand? And the answer comes very straightforwardly, the 144,000. Now bear with me for just a moment because this is where this is where you're leaning to your friend and saying, it's about to get weird. This is not like what my pastor told me. <laughs> Bear with me. I actually don't think, and hopefully I've set you up to realize, I don't think this is that complicated. Look, I want to ask two questions. Who are the 144,000, and what does it mean to be sealed? Things come in twos tonight. Bear with me. I'm not sure why. Who are the 144,000? Look, notice the cues in the text. The first one is a little more subtle, but it has to do with that list of tribes there in verses 5 through 8. We get lots of lists of the tribes of Israel throughout Scripture. This one is weird, for lack of a better term. For some inextricable reason, uh, Dan and Ephraim are missing from the list. Uh, Joseph's name is included in the list, but isn't found in any other listing. In other words, what commentators are saying is, is the author is, is stylizing this list. He's speaking symbolically about this list as he mentions it. But the real key to me comes from the number itself. Do you remember Monday night when we were talking about the significance of numbers, especially the number 12? 12 was the Jewish sort of equivalent of the total number that there should be. If you take all of the believing people prior to the coming of Christ, submitted by the number 12, represented by the number 12, and all of the believing people after the coming of Christ, represented by another number 12, multiply those together, you get 144. Multiply that times 1,000, and you simply heighten the idea. So what is John saying? The 144,000 are nothing more than the total group of believing people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, if you fancy yourself a Christian tonight, the 144,000 are you. It's a symbolic number for a lot of people. And by the way, the chapter reads a whole lot more interesting when you put yourself in the midst of it. One last little clue, and I'll leave this. Look, notice what John does in verse 4. He says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. That's what he hears, but skip down to verse 9. 
But after this, I looked and behold, what? A great multitude that no one can number. Do you see the point? He hears a symbolic number, but when he looks and sees, it's a number that he can't even come close to counting. What does that mean? It means there's going to be a lot of people in heaven. That's it. And it's glorious and beautiful. That's who I think the 144,000 now, now, it's a little more interesting to figure out what it means to be sealed. Notice that the angels are told to hold off. Notice the point there. Hold off before the sixth seal is broken. That is before the end of space and time, the angels are going to go out and seal the saints. So as it were, there is a great historical gap of chapter 7 that exists between the fifth and the sixth seal, which is human history as we know it at this point. So what does that mean? It means this very simply that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Look, in Ephesians chapter 1, we get the Apostle Paul talking about this. When he says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. There it is. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. (laughs) Man, I wish we had more time to talk about this. What does that mean? Look, a seal was used in ancient Near Eastern times. We know. Do you remember when... um, How about this? When Pilate orders Jesus' tomb guarded, do you notice he also orders it to be sealed? What they would have done after they rolled the stone before the tomb entrance is they would have taken a glob of hot wax and put it on the stone that was rolled, and the other glob would have gone on the wall of the tomb. And they would have attached between the two a cord between them, which effectively sealed the tomb. That's the idea. What does it mean? It means that it's being imprinted with a measure of authenticity and safety. You will know if someone breaks out of that tomb because the seal will be broken. And what what John is saying and what the angels are saying is that God is in the process by His Spirit of sealing His people. He's making them authentic and He's making them protected so that they are safe as kittens. What this means then is that having believed... Having believed, it means that I, am, that, that I can face the four horsemen. I can face what's coming to me. Look, y'all, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He does so to show that He is, he is protecting you, that no one can snatch you out of His hand, that no harm is going to come to you as long as you are His in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what you're thinking, though. You're thinking, you're not paying attention. Because for the last 2,000 years, a world of harm has come to God's people. And a world of harm has come to me. How can you say that we are sealed and protected when God's people fade away the way in which they do? We can say it for a couple of reasons. Again, two. Look, y'all, the first thing that it says is that our healing, our sealing in Christ by the Holy Spirit is something that will, that, will all, that will never be able to completely consume our life. Have you noticed this yet? Pain, when it comes into a life, always has a tendency to want to spread into every nook and cranny of your life. 
like a pebble dropped in the middle of a still pond, one event can suddenly begin to ripple out to where it covers everything. In other words, it's not just that she, the one who broke up with me this semester, doesn't love me. It's that I am unlovable. Did you see the jump? It's not just that the stability of my home is robbed of me when my parents split up, but that there is no stability in my life. And I'm always waiting, as the researchers will tell, for the other shoe to drop. It may be good now, but it's probably going to be bad. Pain has a way of rippling out into the life. And it happens to ministers too. I can remember being in my office and having someone sort of, I don't know, critique me or or RUF or something. And by the time I got home that night, I've never done anything good in ministry ever. I probably need to get out of ministry and go sell insurance or something. And I'm probably not a Christian either. Look, the snowball of pain always slopes downward and it builds and it builds and it builds until it threatens to reach every nook and cranny to where the world is colored by that pain. And some of you are nodding in absolute agreement because you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not just a singular darkness. No matter how many times your friends look at you and say, get over it, it's ballooned. Look, but the Christian comes along and says, but I have been sealed so that my pain is a singular thing. It does not define me. It does not spread out into every area of my life. Why? This is my second and last reason. Because in the end, it's going to end. The one thing that is said that is wrong throughout this chapter is that the pain that God's people suffer is in the end ultimately temporary. It's temporary. One day, someday, it's going to stop. There's going to be an end. I've always been fascinated by the gambling spirit of suicidal mass murderers. Bear with me. Why is it? Why is it that someone assumes after doing that and turning the gun on themselves Why do they assume that their death is the cessation of their pain? What scientific proof do you have of that fact, sir? That on the other side of it, it's the end. Has someone been over and come back and told you this? What an extraordinary leap of faith it takes to take one's own life. But The Christian looks at those things and says, but that's not. My death actually is the cessation of pain. And I've been guaranteed it. You want to know why? Because I've been sealed Oh, that language is so good, like a deposit, like a down payment. It's the song that we sing. I can't remember. Um, In Emmanuel's land, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. Because glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. What that means is every tiny drop of mercy that you've gotten from your your friend, your Christian friend, your parents, your campus minister or intern is a drop compared to the flood of mercy that will fall upon you at the moment of your dying and your passing. And so glorious will that event be. This is the conviction right here. So glorious will that event be that it will make what we went through in life to be like a distant, fading, 
tiny blip on the screen of eternity. Maybe Ivan Karamazov's words will help you. By the end of the book, as you know if you've read it, he says this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed. Listen, that it will not only make it possible to forgive, but to justify what has happened. My friends, only the Christian spirit can seal us for that. And it has to be what the Apostle Paul has in mind. Which sounds so, it sounds so trivializing in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things through the door. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, do you hear the psychology that he's looking and saying that that is so overwhelmingly glorious, an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison makes this look, and it almost seems mean to say it, that this is, this is light. This is momentary. A Christian sealed by the Spirit looks and says, no matter what I'm going through, it's just for a time. It's just a little while longer. It's a little while longer. And in the end, I'll be able to look back and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it transforms us in the now. You want to know how? Philip Yancey tells a story about a POW camp in World War II where the USGIs who were held there had fashioned themselves a sort of primitive little radio so they could get signals from the outside world. One day the word came over the radio that the Allies were, were days away from their camp and just laying waste to everything in their path. But the German captors of the camp didn't know about it yet. In the days to follow, the soldiers went out and did the exact same work that they had done every single day of their imprisonment. But they all reported that they did so with a little bit of a lighter step. Why? Because they knew that it was temporary. This too shall pass. My mother used to tell me all the time. And in the end, we can say that of our whole lives, my friends, please, find me anything that comes close to that other than where we find it here in the Christian gospel. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, would you do just such a thing? Would you convince us that we indeed are sealed by you? Perhaps even would you, would you do the sealing in this place for those who long to know you, who look, Father, in the midst of an overwhelming grief. There are too many faces in this room 
for there not to be stories that would break the thin shoulders of this man and most of us in this room. So Father, would you be especially near to that soul even tonight and draw them close to yourself by your Holy Spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.